Hey friends and foes, welcome to Brushwork Podcast. My name is Stephanie Scott and today I'm interviewing Alana Zweski about systems and abstractions in art. Join us in a chat about color systems, storytelling in abstraction, how she organizes her time, best practices for recently graduating students, and much more. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Today I have uh, Alana Zaweski. Is that how you say your last name? Zaweski? Yes. Very good. I nailed it. <laughs> um, love it. I love your artwork. And every time I see it, I feel like a magnet to a beacon every time I'm like in a space or I went to a hotel once and I saw your work there and I was like, oh, that's her, that's her work. <laughs> And I was introduced to your work by Dree Chapik. She invited mm -hmm. me to her home for a studio tour. And I saw your work. It was this little like eight by 10 piece. And it was in her dining room. It was on this big shelf. She had all these knickknacks and treasures from her kids and things like that around it. But I saw yours and I was like, that is a stellar piece of abstract art. I have to see it. I have to like take a closer look. You and I both make abstract work. It's very geometric. It's very aligned up. It's very systematic and careful and I think that you and I are very kindred spirits in that way when our with our oil paintings it's fun and I just had to have you on the podcast so welcome in yeah thanks so much for having me yeah your work is really you have a stellar color control whenever I look at your paintings I'm like you've nailed the saturation control you've nailed color stories and you always have a very limited palette. I'm pretty sure you work with like mm -hmm. two or three colors at a time, pigments even mm -hmm. at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's always quite stunning. How did you develop that color control? How did you develop your skills, not only as an abstract painter, but just as a colorist in general? Yeah, so I, I would say that color is like more than 50% of my reason to go to the studio at all or to yeah. make paintings at all. Anytime I start a new painting, it's often started with this idea of a certain color thing I want to try. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a huge part of my experience as an artist. Um, and it's a really big part of my experience as a teacher. And I think being okay. a teacher really helped inform my studio practice, because once you start having to explain things to students, you really have to understand them, you know, mm -hmm. instead of just like, oh, I can, I'll just see what happens. Just do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when, once I started teaching color theory classes, it, it that kind of like sparked this interest in me that then became what I would became really deep, a period of really deep research. And then a lot of experiment to go along with the research. You know, I took color theory when I was a student, but it was so disconnected from like the actual act of making art. It was, you know, it was too conceptual yeah. mm -hmm. and, and colors don't behave in paint in the same way that they do in concept. And so it took me a long time to kind of link those two things. And then once I did, it kind of, it happened at the same time I became an abstract painter and it all just kind of like went hand in hand and kind of skyrocketed from there. And if you were to talk to any of my students in any of my classes, they would probably tell you that the number one thing that I am emphasizing in all of my classes are color, is color theory, even though most of them are not color theory classes. Yeah. Even in intuitive drawing, I'll talk about color theory. So it's, it's a really pervasive part of kind of who I am in, in a lot of different ways. And yeah, so I do, I do work with limited palettes. I don't think that there's any such thing as an ugly color combination. I don't think there's any such thing as an ugly color. And sometimes I'll try specifically to choose ugly colors with the challenge of making them beautiful because in my opinion, all colors can be beautiful with the right context. So it's all about context and how, how and color relativity and how the colors in, inform each other. You know, I was just at the farmer's market today and the, and the guy, I don't know how we started talking about that, but a guy I was buying bread from, from said that you should never put purple and green together. 
And I was like, that's such a funny rule because like what kind of purple and what kind of green, Mm -hmm. you know, are we talking about lime green? Are we talking about eggplant? You know, it's like, and I was like, what a great challenge. I would love to make a painting that was purple and green just to to see if I could do it. Yeah. So I think it's all color relativity is something I think a lot about. And then uh, it just interesting color relationships. Like if you have my, my, my favorite color relationships just between two colors is to see how extreme I could make them in all the four aspects of color without them becoming different hues. So Mm -hmm. if I had a really warm, saturated, light green and a really dark, cool, desaturated green, and they're both green, and then they they bring that out in each other and they look even more, one looks even more warm, one looks even more cool. And and what kind of watching that magic happen as as they interact with each other on the canvas um, is a huge part of the magic of of painting and the ma- I think color is just magical. It really is. I feel like all abstract art is just one color relationship with another, and there's nothing yeah. like sexier to me than two colors that are so close together <laughs> but so very yeah. different. And it's extremely fun. Yeah, you did portraiture before this, before abstraction. Is that right? Good. Yeah, I the whole time I was a student, I was you know for all through undergrad and all through grad school. And my grad school is three years, so I had seven years of teachers being like, why are you making figurative paintings? And I was like, ah, I'm going to make figurative paintings. Don't tell me what to do. Don't question my methods. You know? <laughs> what a student know. thing to say. <laughs> so classic. Yeah, I held on to it for so long. I was so stubborn. And then like within six months of leaving school, I became an abstract painter. It was like, it just had, I was just, I just needed to like stop having people push against me. You yeah. know? And then I was like, oh, okay. Um, I also think it helped that I, when I left school, then I couldn't paint every day and I was, I was working every day and I could mm. only paint on Saturdays and I had five days to think about my paintings instead of making them. And so then they became really conceptual. Um, and so that I, I think leaving school had a really big impact on, uh, on that, that big transformation that happened, but I still use the figurative background that I have. So all my paintings still start with figurative drawings underneath. And then the algorithms that I write, right. use the drawings underneath to find shapes and so the shapes if I if I didn't have that my shapes would all be simple geometry because it's I don't know how to invent a, a um an organic shape mm-hmm. so it's kind of just a way to have access to organic shapes that I don't have to invent so they're still there but they look very different that's really similar to my, how I got into abstraction I was doing representational work and then I went to a residency and I did landscape painting forever and then my teachers were like, your color control sucks, Stephanie. And I was like, oh, okay. And they were like, you need to go take more color theory classes. And then I did. I was like, I love abstraction. It's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get into color theory, then you're like, I don't need anything else. I just need the color. It doesn't need to look like a thing. What is figurative art but abstraction? Just very so precise. Yeah. It's so abstraction precise. that has an order to it. Mm-hmm. You can put a different order. Yeah. Exactly. Do you... You just mentioned your algorithms, and I was going to get to this later, but we're going to get to it now because it's very fun. Your algorithmic created paintings are, I think, what's so mysterious and interesting to a lot of people who are new to your work, where you're just like, how did she make that? How did she come up with the colors and the placements and everything? And your algorithms, I've read about this a bit on your website, are from written text, and then you translate it into, you know, the letter A does this, the letter B, if then that, that. is that correct? Excellent. Do you choose your colors also based off an algorithm or is yeah. it different? Yeah. So color, color theory and algorithms are really compatible because mm-hmm. they're both systematic. 
Um, and, you know, a color in, in a lot of people's art is not systematic, but it can be. And, and even then, it still kind of pushes against your system, right? It can never be truly changed by a system. It's true. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is another thing that's so fun about working with it. But they're very compatible. Um, one, one of the, the color theory things, or one of the color things I use that's not color theory, but that just became a, like a built-in part of my system out of convenience, maybe, is that I have synesthesia in that I can see, when, whenever I think of certain numbers, think of numbers and letters, they are automatically just colorful in my mind. Really? That's cool. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, so I know some people have really intense synesthesia where they like taste mm -hmm. something, you know, so mine's not, mine's not intense, but it's like consistent enough that I can, can easily order things like A's are always red and E's are always blue and D's are always purple. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I can so I can so easily systematize that. So even though I don't, I might not have red, blue, and purple in every painting. I can break it down into warm, cool, and neutral. Right. And so then you know then I can categorize that based off of the the temperature use in my palette, whatever my palette is. That's like a superpower. That's so cool. <laughs> I yeah, it's, it's yeah. super convenient. <laughs> very very convenient. You're just like oh, I just know it's just because that's the color it is. That's just what color it is. Yeah, I don't have to think about it. <laughs> I had a friend when I was younger who had that with numbers, but not with letters and every number combination, like a two might be chartreuse and a three might be black, but 23 would be those two colors combined and it would be like really interesting. And, um, and so that's, that reminds me of that. That was, that's pretty awesome. When you take your texts that you're pulling this from, are they things that are self-written or are they things that you've pulled from other people? Yeah. So they come from, from different, they have historically come from different sources over the, the mm -hmm. time I've been doing this um, type of work, which is like maybe eight years or so. Um, so when I started, I was deliberately interested in text that was random. So I like, like if I found somebody's to-do list on the bus that they just oh, left. Yeah. Yeah. I was just so interested in like, this had meaning at one point and now it's meaningless and it's not extraordinary. It's incredibly ordinary. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, very human. And then, uh, you know, and then I would like roll dice to like pick a book off of my bookshelf or like, you know, to find a certain page in the phone book, mm -hmm. like back when we still got phone books delivered. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then I would see how that could align with some sort of extraordinary meaning that I was considering at the time. And, and sometimes it did. And I just loved those coincidences. Then I started working with text that I found um, particularly enraging and abhorrent like really really powerful emotional response from me yeah that I wasn't I wasn't seeking them they just I would just encounter one and think I have to do something about this like I have to do something with this that's when I started reordering the texts where I would I would take the document and put all the letters in alphabetical order sentence by sentence yes and I actually did one art piece, conceptual art piece, where I just took a 10-page document and just did that to the entire 10 pages, and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't make a painting. It was just like this like, nonsense document. <laughs> it was like a huge labor of love, right? It was, yeah. like, took so much time. I do it. I just, there are probably programs that can do it, but I do it by hand. And so uh, then I would work with both forms of the, of the documents, um, where one would be able to cause harm, and one would be complete nonsense and had been totally disarmed and to me that that felt empowering where I felt like there was there was something I could actually do about these things that I felt like were not okay mm -hmm. and I've kind of stopped the, the reordering thing and I'm experimenting now with like putting in personal data or personal documents that then are combined with um, these larger bigger picture documents and still trying to figure out like how how I want to present that 
because to me, because these are things that are really feel very personally enraging. Yes. And 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 are oftentimes very political, but I'm I'm not a political person, mm-hmm. and so I don't feel like it's okay for me to be a political artist because I'm just like not competent enough. That's interesting. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still kind of um, kind of trying to sort through how I want this to be presented. But I did have I, one one thing I was thinking about recently. Somebody I've got to show up at the Taproot Theater right now, and. Yeah. Um, the woman who curated that wrote a statement for me after doing a studio visit and having these conversations with me. And she, when she first wrote her statement, she said I was using texts that, that were, was using hateful words. And then I wanted to correct her and I was like, okay, so why, where did she get that idea and why is what I'm doing different than that? And I realized it's because the texts that I'm dealing with now are things that are not categorized as hateful. Mm-hmm. They are things that kind of melt invisibly into our culture that that we are just accepting culturally. Yeah. Can you give me an and example? Then, yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> I can give you an example, but I'm still I'm still working on it. It's hard not to give an ex- it's it's hard not to give an example without being political because these are oftentimes political documents. It's true. It's true. Well yeah, so it's it, it's it's if it was something that was definitely hateful, it that would be too easy, right? Where we're like, we all agree this is hateful. Um, even the people who are saying it are probably like, yeah, I'm being hateful right now. Yes, yeah. Like, it's too easy. To me, the things that really get me are the things that we're all kind of unconsciously accepting. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot, and it mostly has to do with hierarchies and colonial hierarchies and, um, you know, de- devaluing entire entire categories of lives. And one of the examples that I, of one of the texts that I have definitely shared, the origins for, uh, where I was kind of connecting my personal story with, was um, where I was making paintings uh, that were using the documents from when my babies were first born. So they mm-hmm. were preemie twins. They were very, very small. I was worried they were going to die. And they were all about, it was all about them trying to gain weight because one of them was two and a half pounds when she was born. And so I was obsessed with how much wow. she was eating and how much she was gaining. And she had shut down and I and and, it, and she seemed like she didn't have enough energy to eat and didn't have enough energy to fight for her life. And so my, you know, my postpartum brain was just like going crazy with anxiety and, uh, and my husband and I were like very meticulously writing down every tiny little milliliter. We were measuring it as measuring cup yeah. how much they were eating and, and we were writing that down and you can just see the anxiety in this document. And so I used that once we kind of got out of the weeds, you know, mm-hmm. and now our, our babies are doing fine. We, I could kind of then like reflect on that time and, and, and use that document. And it was about how much milk they were consuming. Right. And mm-hmm. so then I put that with the, a document that was explaining how to ecologically dump thousands of gallons of cow's milk because of pandemic supply chain issues. And wow. so what what seemed really poignant about that is that in order to get that milk from those cows, they had to be lactating. And in order for them to be lactating, they had to be mothers, mm-hmm. which is like, that's one of those things, we've got a veil over our eyes for that. Like we don't really connect the fact that anytime we're getting milk from a cow, she has to have had her baby taken away from her in order for us to get this milk. And then the babies get taken away and they get turned either into more dairy cows or they, if they're male, they get turned into veal. Mm-hmm. And it's just this really tragic story for this, this acquiring of milk. And then we dumped it. Right. Wasted. And then there's all, yeah. yeah. It's like, we didn't, it didn't even benefit anybody. And and then there's all the pain of the, of the pandemic. And there's the, there's the pain of these and the way that we're treating lactating bodies the, and, and, and then how that connected to how I felt about being a lactating body. Yes. My concern over, my baby's not getting enough milk. 
these mother cows not being able to give their babies any milk Mm -hmm. and then the milk just being dumped in a way that could even cause a complete ecological disaster. I mean, it's just like pain across the board that I could kind of connect from my personal experience with this much bigger issue that is hidden in our world, completely hidden. Um, Like we accept it so easily because of the, because of the way that the society is structured. Um, so that's the example that I can give now, but that's I'm still a, kind of holy cat's example. That's a <laughs> really good one, <laughs> and I imagine that almost every single one of the paintings you've made recently are are like that, with stories like that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, dang, that's intense. That's awesome. I <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> right, but these are things where it's like I've got really big emotional feelings. Yeah. And so what I do is I'll turn them into this logical, colorful, mm-hmm. ordered, beautiful thing. Right, Very like attractive. it's people. Like total complete transformation yeah. and control and pow- empowerment, mm-hmm. right? You know, sometimes people ask me like, why don't you paint about nice things? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I would never ask like, you no, that, but that's hysterical. I'm like, if the transformation is what's so valuable here, right? That it goes mm-hmm. from seeing something that I don't have any control over that I find so upsetting. Mm-hmm. And then I can turn it, I can, you know, just turn it into something beautiful. Me it's beauty, it's awareness, it's interest, it's it's being seen more than it was before. It is doing something. And that's very, very cool. I just want to absorb that in for a second. That's that's really cool. (laughs) I feel like you need to be making, you should make Instagram shorts describing some of these paintings that you've done, especially the older ones that you feel a little bit less closer to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I have, I did have a written statement about that series. It was called Don't Die Over Spilled Milk. And I made five of them. Yeah. And kind of a catchy title that was really long and hard to type out. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, but I don't know if people always read that. So um, yeah, making a video is a good idea. It's a good idea. I feel like many people really connect to subjects like these and they do feel hopeless and they do feel like, okay, I could make a pretty painting, but I just am so, you get into the doom scrolling thing on your phone, right? You get into like that anxiety that you're like, okay, I have anxiety about my children. I have anxiety about my family and finances, but I also have this outer world anxiety that's so yeah. intense and exactly it hangs over every decision you make and it's like it's it's tough to be alive folks it's tough to it's be tough alive, to be alive. <laughs> and the, the scale of concern too where it's mm-hmm. like like my concern my world was so like it was like between me and the, like 18 inches away from this baby that I was like eat 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 you know I was just yeah. pleading with her to eat and then she'd spit up and it would feel like it all came back out and I just, I just like was counting every single calorie and, you know, so it's like, I've got this world that is so close and closed in. And, and then there's this, this outer world of like, there are millions of cows that are experiencing this every day. You know, it's like, it's mm-hmm. even so hard to fathom. It's so hard to fathom that we want to just kind of like forget about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This, the, like the personal tragedy versus the global tragedy. It's, it's how do we reconcile, especially in the age of information where we know all these global tragedies. It's. One thing I definitely learned during the pandemic was learning how to self-censor what I was being exposed to, because what yeah. I was seeing or viewing would absolutely come through my art, whether I wanted it to or not. And you could tell when I was having anxious days, you could tell when a certain painting, I mean, I say you, I could tell when I looked at a painting, I was like, wow, I brought that to the studio with me. And I brought that feeling of despair or yeah. nervousness or anxious, whatever emotion that was. And learning how to be like, okay... I know that, you know, there's a limit to what do I expose myself to be informed and what do I expose myself to keep myself able to do the work I need to do without alterating it in a way that's not maybe what uh, my commissioner wanted or what whatever job I have. 
it's it's a tough balance. And I think you're yeah. walking the line pretty well. <laughs> I, oh, thank you. You're doing it. Yeah, I love the plan of self-censoring your information is probably one that we all need. You got it. You have to learn how to do it. Absorb it all. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just going to give your therapist a lot of money just forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to think about it. It's a good one. Um, I was going to ask, my next question was going to be, what painting have you done that's been most like a self-portrait to yourself? Have you ever done a, a painting about your own like diary entries, if you are a journalist or whatever? Have you ever done anything like that where it's like, these are only from Alana's thoughts and Alana's words? Mm, that's a really good question. I, I think that the one I, I described about the milk is the is the only one where I was kind of vulnerable yes. in the painting. You know, like that's why it's also the one that I feel comfortable talking about. I mean, I'm uncomfortable because I'm vulnerable. Right. But I feel comfortable because it's my story, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm allowed to have ownership over that story and it's my experience. And I've, and I've mostly been having more distance than that of it's, um, it's not my personal story. And, and so, I mean, I do find it a lot harder to talk about, right? Like I kind of yeah. feel like I need to like take a deep breath before I can like I can share that, but every time I say it, it gets easier. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's that's the only the only one I've been I've been able to feel was very personal. But I think I'm going to keep doing that. I think that's going to be the trajectory that I'm going on. I feel like as a professional artist, people really connect to the stories, right? And especially when you're trying to sell your work, they and it's abstraction, which is hard to read, versus mm -hmm. like a face on a canvas. If you have a story, you have a sentiment, which makes people connect to it, which, you know, might make them want to purchase said work. I, I think you mm -hmm. should do a self-portrait sometime. I think you should do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be different. Yeah, I know. Now I want to hear how you fit that into your own work. Sure. I um. Yeah, can you give me a quick version of it? Okay, so a story from my work. I, this painting behind me, this one right here, mm -hmm. that's called mm -hmm. The Tower. And I love tarot cards. Are you familiar with those? Um, so I, I love the card, the tower, which is, if you're unfamiliar with this listeners, it's a card of doom, basically. On the card, you have a castle and it's being struck by lightning and everyone's falling off of it and dying. And like, it's just like dark skies. Nothing looks good about this. So when you have a question, like, how's my relationship going? And you pull the doom card, you're like, or the tower, you're like, okay, <laughs> it's really tough, right? So I wanted to take a feeling of like that where you're just like, okay, this is darkness. It's not fun. And I took a all gold background. That's gold leaf on the background there. And I wanted to take the, the flip side of the meaning, which is that change can be good and change can be uncomfortable. And if you want to grow as a person, you have to break everything that matters to you. Mm. And here we have a gold lightning background and it has a perfect symmetry of a, a diamond and the diamond is changing colors in a clockwork fashion and it just has that symbolism, which is kind of fun. And that's how I, I take my abstraction work and I create stories around it and themes and I try to pull the colors with the emotions and I try to have a little bit of, you know, realism symbolism. You can see lightning strikes going through here but also have it be so vague that you're like, what's happening? And Right, where somebody else could find their own story in there. Exactly, exactly. And on this one in particular, it's like a little bit offset on the sides, so it never seems like it's perfectly hung straight. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Listeners, I'll put a link to this piece in the show notes for you. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit unsettling, but also it's, you know, it's gold, so it's really shiny and pretty and interesting. So that's, that's how I think of it. 
So the entire background is gold leaf. Mm-hmm. And what? And then you're so you're painting on gold leaf. Yeah. With acrylic oil. Or with oil. How how is that material experience? I've never done that before. Gold leaf is. Let's get granular on techniques. <laughs> gold leaf is extremely slippery, so you put it on, and then you put the um, sealant on, so it doesn't. Um, like say you're using copper leaf that's gold sh- gold sheen, it'll tarnish. Or if I'm using real gold, um, it's very delicate and it kind of puts on like tissue paper that like is also cotton candy and water. If you like touch it too much, it just evaporates and you're like, where did it go? <laughs> it's like it's like really kind of tough but very fun. And then you put the the sealant over it, and the sealant I use has a little bit of tooth to it. It's almost like a clear gesso, so it'll hold on to the oil paint better. But if you're not careful, the gold leaf scratches off really easy. And so when you're painting it, you have to be very, very delicate. And this painting has a million little scratches all over it, which I think adds to the theme of the tower, which is fun. There's a total conceptual theme there. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, and then you put the varnish over all of it and it looks like really cohesive. But yeah, it's kind of fun. I like the idea of it being delicate. And so the process of trying not to scratch it is, is in... There's like this this goal and this like maybe anxiety and mm-hmm. it's impossible you will scratch it. Mm-hmm, exactly. That, that, that feels like a nice like metaphor for life. It's, it's we want super... everything to be perfect and we try so hard and then it's not perfect and it's never going to be perfect. Hi, my name is Stephanie and I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> and it's not going to be perfect. It's really good. I had it up at a show recently and someone brushed their jacket against it, just <gasps> turning, and there's a big scratch on it that I have to fix now. And I'm like, it's cool. It's oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah. so interesting. That's my, that's my little, that's my little art. Yeah. All of my, all of my paintings have stories. I like to have fun stories. Like one time my ex-boyfriend called me and was like, let's get back together. And I was like, no, no. And um, so I made that into a painting. <laughs> Is it called no no? <laughs> yeah, basically. And um, I have another painting that I made about like I was afraid of the dark when I was a wee lad, and so I made one called Nightlight, and it has like kind of the like seeing a nightlight in a hallway like way down in the distance. It feels like that, and it looks like that. So that's kind of fun. But I like I like stories like that. Yeah. So you have shape and color that is affected by the story for sure. Mm-hmm. Sounds that sounds real. That takes a lot of creativity. And what I like about my work is it does not take a lot of creativity. You're like, I want zero choices, and I'm like, give me all yeah. the choices. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's so interesting. What a contrast. It's pretty fun, especially with work that looks pretty similar. You know, between your mm-hmm. your work and my work, and that the approach just sounds like it's it's on opposite ends of the spectrum. Maybe we should do a painting collaboration sometime. Like you yeah. do half, and I'll do half, and we'll right. <laughs> see what that looks like. Yeah, <laughs> could be fun. All right, my next question for you is, what does a typical day in the life of an artist look like for you? Like, start to finish, this could be a teaching day, this could be a not-teaching day, whatever whatever it looks like. Uh, okay. It's yeah. great. It's a great day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to describe a studio day, because I think describing a teaching day sounds pretty boring. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, well, my day, so my days always start with, with taking care of the babies. I, I get them up at 7.20, I've got this, like, routine where it's like if it's 723 and I get them up I like get anxiety and that mm-hmm. started because I wanted to get them up at seven and I was like 715 is basically the same as seven and then I was like well 720 is basically 7:15. but if I go any later that's 730 right yeah. and it's like now I'm too far away from seven so that's why 720 is like my cutoff so I have to if I want to do yoga or meditation I have to do it before they get up so mm-hmm. I'll get up at like six and I'll do that and then I'll get them up 
Um, and I take care of them um, on, until 8.30, which is tough because I have to leave at 8.45. Oh. And so I, uh, it, getting out of the house is an absolute debacle. Every time <laughs> I do it, I can't believe that I pulled it off. <laughs> That's a You're like, I'm the winner. <laughs> Everyone celebrate me. <laughs> and I'm always like just on time for things. I will never show up early. It's never going to happen. <laughs> or maybe like three to five minutes late. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so there's like a, like a Herculean effort that occurs before 9am. Nice. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, then in my studio, the first thing I'll do is make tea because I, I find tea very comforting. I'll even drink it in the summer. So Me I kind too. of have a big balance of it that I just drink all, all day. I don't even care what kind, you know, caffeine, no caffeine. I don't care. Yeah. And then I'll usually mix paint for a while as a way to kind of warm up. And, um, and a lot of times it's for the painting that I'm, that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I, I, I reset my palette every, every time I, I start my painting day, so I always have to mix before I start. But sometimes I'll mix just to like find new palettes for the next painting. Um, and then I um, and I one of the, the other thing I like to do when I first get to my studio is put in my headphones and I listen to a book on an audiobook. Oh, fun! Um, because it's, they're I, what I like about them is they're really really long. You know, podcasts. It's like every hour I have to make a decision about what else to listen to, and I I just don't like that interruption. So I like how long the the audiobooks are. I can just yeah. go all day. And I'll put it in and it kind of focuses me because then I kind of stop having these internal thoughts that kind of drag Distract me around. You. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll, that, I'll kind of do that just to get myself focused. It's not like I wait until I'm ready to start painting. Yeah. And then, the, I mean, usually, um, do, you know, the algorithm writing that I do takes maybe an hour at the beginning of every painting. And so mostly what I'm doing is this like repetitive wrist motion of these either horizontal or vertical marks that occasionally then get these like weird loops to them. But they're, they're following this path that has already been laid out to me. So then it's like, it's very settled and very quiet and very relaxed. And I'll go in the middle of the day, I'll go walk to Starbucks. And that's my like, like I wake up because I'm outside and then I get a little coffee and then I can kind of go strong for the second half of the day. And it's a real nine to five kind of routine. And then as soon as I get home, it's like smash, smash right into babyhood again. <laughs> you know, they're like crazy wild toddlers who are also going through separation anxiety. So I can't like go into the bathroom without it being like a big thing. And then I have to bring them and then they mm-hmm. like everything around because it's not baby proofed. And yep. And I'm like running after them and then they, they go down around seven twenty, and then I take a shower and then it's like 8 PM. And then it's like, then I crash. And you're exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> Full on. There's like, no, like there's no time to think unless I'm out of the house. So I, it's like, I've got this nine to five, like special shell of a time of like any adult thoughts that can occur in my head need to happen at that time mm-hmm. <laughs> where I used to be able to just think whenever I wanted. Right. <laughs> So it's like I get I get somewhere and I'm like fast on it, like just just diving right into like any planning and I like make things happen really fast. And so I guess there's something to be said about the focus of that. That structure is great. And d- did you have a studio outside of your your home or apartment wherever before oh, your children yes. were born or is yes. that recent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I first moved to Seattle, I had my apartment in my living room or my, my apartment. Studio. I had my studio in my yeah. living room. And then, yeah, for three years, which um, is good to know that I can do it, but I don't ever want to do it again. <laughs> and yeah, and so then uh, the only other time I've painted at home was during the pandemic when things were shut down and mm-hmm. weird. Um, but yeah, now I need to leave the house just to like let any thought enter my head that isn't, hey, stop that. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Having that transform transformation just like on the daily, like a tiny over like, okay, I'm transforming into the artist self, which is outside right. of my home self. It's distinctive and really good. I also used to listen to a lot of audiobooks and I painted and if you're listening and you're a painter, you're like, and you want to focus. They're so good at getting you to focus. You are. It's 
it's kind of magic. And you then train yourself that when you hear an audiobook, you are ready to paint or draw or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. it's really great. But highly yeah, you think you'd be distracted by the story, but that doesn't happen. But maybe it's because I'm not listening to anything too interesting, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's most excellent. I know I'm a, I do live streaming on Twitch. And so I no longer listen to audiobooks while I paint because I'm live and I'm listening to people. And that's like, also a great accountability thing for focus and paying attention is someone else is watching you work so you must work you're not going to mess around on your phone you're just going to paint because someone's watching you <laughs> oh my god that it's, is but then it takes it out of being an internal you know painting just it's like it's like I'm so I go so inside of myself mm -hmm. it's, almost it's not like, for everyone that's for sure <laughs> yeah and, and anytime I like I'm even like trying to take like a like a short video on my phone that I'll post later it's like I have to like it's a huge struggle to like get out of the walls of my own brain mm -hmm. and remember external. Yeah. So that's really impressive. You can do that. Do you, you do it every time you paint? I now paint almost exclusively on stream, which is wild. Right. <laughs> and people, people can talk to you and say like, mm -hmm. I like that color. Try a different color. Exactly. Uh, I, I mostly, I hear less about art critiques and I hear more about people's relationships. I feel like a bartender. People like come watch me paint and then they're like, can I tell you about my problems? And I'm like, <laughs> Great, let's Whoa. go. <laughs> and they're strangers? They're yeah, they're strangers at first, but now I have these like regulars and they come by and they just like hang out and sometimes they'll draw with me if they're artists. Or they'll be like, Okay, I'm just gonna clean while you while you're painting and I'm like, Great. Whoa. Have you ever heard of the so term Yeah, have <laughs> you heard the term uh body doubling? No. It's when you are working on something, like say you're at a cafe and you're like working on something written and you have another person there who's also working on something written, you're going to be more motivated to stay focused and on task. And being live streaming is kind of similar. If they, someone sees someone working, you're going to be more inclined to work, even if you're not in the same room, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's very true. And actually, I, 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 I can feel that for myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't let my students wear their headphones um, when I'm teaching, which they always there is increasingly becoming harder and harder to get them not to yes. do because now we're like now with the little airpods like we're used to just having them in all the time which wasn't the case when i first started teaching but it's like if you have your if you have your headphones in you're then you're like not connected to that energy i feel like we get we get this energy this like painting energy or this writing energy mm -hmm. from the people around you that that you can grow from and feed off of that it's going to make you better so take advantage of it take advantage of it when i was in art school and like working in the studio with other people. I also went to Cornish, which is where you teach, which is kind of funny. And um, when I was in school there, I working with other artists around, you'd be like, there's another artist in the studio next door. Like that was incredible. And then I left school and I was by myself and I was like, I'm all by myself. <laughs> I don't know what to make. There's no one to ask. And it's, it's quite abrupt. It's quite abrupt. Yeah, mm -hmm. I know. I was not prepared for that. When I, yeah, when I was a student, which was like that built in community you have in school, because you have it your entire life, like five years old, you go to kindergarten, and then mm -hmm. it's like, from then on, you've got it. Mm -hmm. and, so, and the constant feedback from teachers, and it's just like, you know, everybody's doing the same thing you're doing. Um, and then you leave and you have to get a job. And then the people at the job are not doing the thing that you're doing. And, then, mm -hmm. and they don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like all of a sudden I'm not surrounded by painters or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's something that we have to then find a way to cultivate for ourselves later, which it sounds like you've figured that out. Mm -hmm. Twitch helped with that. Twitch helped with loneliness. Twitch is where I stream artwork. And during the pandemic, it like really came to a head, the loneliness of being in the studio oh. by yourself. Like some of it's like 
being alone, which is good, but some of it's the loneliness and it's, I think that's, maybe I'll dive into that on another topic or another day on the podcast, but it's knowing the difference and being able to feel yourself alone and introspective and studying and like really like getting into it. But lonely is different in the pandemic. Definitely exasperated that for, I think a lot of people just being, you know, in your apartment by yourself or with your one roommate who you can't see. And that was Maybe. a big deal. So having the opportunities to have community again is like, yeah, great. Let's go. Keep yeah. it up. Don't put your earbuds in. Yeah. <laughs> but you, do you paint every day? Or you just have a, you have a studio, full-time artist, I guess is my question. I'm a full-time artist. I paint four days a week. That's a and lot of time alone. <laughs> it's a lot of time alone. I don't feel that unless I'm like over the summer or something. It's true. You also have babies, so... That helps. You're never alone. <laughs> I've got the opposite problem. <laughs> okay, I have just a couple more questions for you. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for actual hours about things. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to keep it succinct. So what is... Right, let's continue with the school subject. Can you tell me more about your position at Cornish, which is where you've been teaching for five Maybe six years now? Seven years. Seven yeah. years, yeah. Been for nine, I've been teaching for seven. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. What do you specifically teach at Cornish? Yeah, teach drawing and painting. Mostly the mostly I'm teaching the intro classes. Mm -hmm. um, and so the students, um, uh, sometimes I'm like, I'm like the first teacher they get in that subject. Um, yeah, so intro to drawing and painting. And every once in a while I get to teach a color theory course. I would love to, to increase the frequency of that. But I've got I've, one of the really great things I've been able to do at Cornish is that the intermediate painting classes have different themes to them. So it's not just like general intermediate painting. There right. are four themes. And so you can take it four times mm -hmm. and every time it's different, you learn something different. That's awesome. And I was able to design one of the themes, which is systems painting. Oh my gosh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I love teaching that class. I just, it just ended last, I teach it every two years. So it's mm -hmm. not, it's not that frequent. So that I just taught it again. It just ended last week. And what a trip it is to design a course off of your specific studio practice, which is a, which is a real, it's a real privilege that I'm thankful for. That's, that's awesome. Is that your favorite thing to teach? Or do you prefer the color theory classes? You know, that's a good question. I, I do really like teaching that. But it is a tough rival for intro to painting. I love teaching intro to painting. There's just like that, that class is really like, you can really like hone in on good studio practices and like a steep learning curve. Like you come in and you're like, I don't know anything about painting or I've been painting for years, but I've never taken a formal class or, you know, it's like right. whatever people are coming it's like you can really kind of whip yourself into shape so fast. You can't believe how much progress you can make. Mm -hmm. um, where when you start to get into the intermediate, it's like, you just kind of figure it out, you know, like do what you want. Like, what do you, what do you, what, what do you want to do? <laughs> and it's a lot more nebulous and a lot. And it's like, a, I feel like it's, it can be kind of a trudge at times, which is really the true studio practice. Um, but intro is just like so clear what your goals are that it's, it can be so satisfying and so exciting. Um, so yeah, tough rival, really, but it's really good to have those skills and to have that foundation that is, so succinct and it sets you up for really well done long-term painting practices and drawing practices. What is one piece of advice you would suggest to an artist who wants to be a professional but isn't quite there yet? Oh my god, I have so much advice. I've spent so much time thinking about this because it was such a struggle for me and because I the idea I had about what it being a professional artist would be when I was in grad school was just so different. Yeah. <laughs> I felt blindsided by it. I was like, I wish I could just go back and like talk to 2014 me and be mm -hmm. like, listen, here's what you need to know. <laughs> 
So if I could boil it down to two things, one I did not struggle with, but the other one I really did. But the, but the first one most a lot of people struggle with is that you have to keep making art. Yes. You just have to keep making it. If you're unmotivated, if you're tired, if you have to work 40 hours a week, if you don't know anybody else, if you have to work in your apartment and you have a one-bedroom apartment and you're working in your living room, which is what I had to do, mm-hmm. um, you just have to keep doing it. You have to and, 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 and make a schedule and then stick to that schedule. I painted for eight hours every single Saturday for seven years. It was only after, only once the babies were born that I stopped painting on Saturdays. Yeah. And so anytime a friend wanted to hang out with me, I was like, great, I can do Saturday night. I never did anything on Saturday during the day socially. That's it was like advice. total, because I was working Monday through Friday. So I was mm-hmm. like, what else am I going to do? I got to paint. Like I can't, I can't not paint. So you have to keep making the work. Even if nobody's seeing it, nobody's buying it, nobody's praising it. You just have to keep doing it mm-hmm. because eventually something will happen. You'll make, you'll catch on to something good. People will start to respect what you're doing because they can see how how motivated you are to keep doing it. You know, you have to invest in yourself, and then other people will kind of catch on to that. That's true. So that's the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is that you need 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 community. And this was the thing I didn't really understand, which is that I thought if I made really good work, and I really put my you know I really I applied to things, and I was like studious, right? A, like yeah. a student, right? Like I knew how to be a student. Mm-hmm that that would get me somewhere. And that is not how you get anywhere. <laughs> it actually doesn't really matter what your work looks like. Because <laughs> so there's, there's a world for anything, right? It's like, uh, you know, graffiti art or, or things we might see as like low or crafty art. Like there's a world for that where it's, where it's elevated or like really high art. Like, you know, it's like there, there's, there's a place for everything. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter what you're making. What you need is, is a community of like-minded makers. And so you have to find them and then you have to invest in them by going to their openings and you know if you're interested in being a part of a gallery scene you have to go to all their openings and you have to become familiar with their programming and you invite people to be on your podcast and Mm -hmm. (laughs) podcast. (laughs) like I feel like you're really good at this oh thank you Um, you like being active on you know social media and and being and just being around and being friendly and, and and really investing in the community you know like spending time going to openings or or starting your own gallery and your garage like those things will pay off for you professionally i mean they'll pay off for you spiritually because you are a part of a community which everybody needs yes but if if your goal is purely professional that would be my number one piece of advice those are great pieces of advice i learned maybe even just two years ago that if you're in a major city that has like a first thursday art walk you should go every single month no matter what, rain or shine, because the same people show up to these things every time. And that's how you meet people. And that's how you become familiar. And that's how you make connections. Show up. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's excellent, excellent advice. Yeah, and you can see that as studio time, where you're like, you know, I'd rather be in my studio. It's artwork. That was always my thing. I was like, Mm -hmm. I just, I don't want to do anything that isn't painting. (laughs) It's like, you have to see that as your studio practice. Yeah. Yeah, artwork is not just painting or creating the actual craft. It is all of the other things encompassed. And it takes a while to learn it. It, takes a while. it does. Yeah. I would say, though, if I if there was a resource that anybody was interested in, mm-hmm. I, um, the book called Art Slash Work, I feel like, lays this all out very clearly. Have you read that one? I have read that one. I've used it for my art book club. It is absolutely good. Oh, art book club. Yeah. Start an art book club. Start an right. art book club. <laughs> it's so good. Do you have anything coming up in the future that you want to talk about? Do you have any shows coming up or projects that you're doing? Well, I've got a show scheduled at Lynn Hodges Gallery next July. So Excellent. Um, I, yeah, now that I'm almost a year away, i got to really start cracking on it. Um, <laughs> so 
there's that. Uh, and I've, I've been working really hard to try to get the next public art thing on my schedule. I haven't quite made it through the, the, the full stages of getting onto a plan of one, but that's my, those are my goals for the future is to do some more big scale public art works. Heck yeah. That's awesome. I saw a little free library bookshelf in the airport the other day and I was like, Hey, (laughs) that's a lot. I still haven't haven't been able to see it in person yet, but it's very cute. I hear it's around. (laughs) It was well stocked with actually good books and I was impressed. I feel like normally when I look at little free libraries, it's just books that nobody wants and I'm like hmm. right mm-hmm. but this one was and good I think the airport <laughs> is the perfect place for a little free library because everybody's <laughs> reading and then you read it and you're like I don't want to carry this book around with me anymore mm-hmm. if you're in <laughs> CTAC it's in there yeah. go see it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where can people find you online yeah so I am on Instagram and my handle is just my name so at Alana Zweski my name starts with an I which looks just like the lowercase L so mm-hmm. people think my name starts with an L sometimes so spelling my name is the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry friends of foes I will put it in the description so you will not mess it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I don't have a website which is just alanaswesky.com uh, and I think yeah I had a I had a um, TikTok for like a month and then I got rid of it so. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> list. Classic. <laughs> Very good. Well thank you for being on the podcast and uh yeah, that was great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had such a nice time talking to you. <laughs> <laughs>